Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. This morning I want to move into the pastoral epistles in the New Testament as we continue our study on the theme of shepherding the flock of God. And we want to look at the first of three basic and fundamental roles that are intrinsic to pastoral ministry today by looking at two texts, 1 Timothy 4.12 and then Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Now the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are policy-making epistles in the life of the church. And I think it's important for us to spend a good bit of time in the pastoral epistles because they outline in nuts and bolts terms what it means to serve the Lord in the life of the local church. And today we look at these two texts, 1 Timothy 4.12 and Titus 2.7. Paul says, Let no man despise thy youth, to Timothy, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith and in purity. Now let's turn over to Titus chapter 2 verse 7 and we read a similar thought as he says to the preacher Titus, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Now both of these letters, 1 Timothy and Titus, were written to preachers. And today we learn that the pastor or the shepherd is a leader. That's the first of three basic functions of a shepherd over the flock. He's a leader of the sheep. Now Jesus taught us that much in the 10th chapter of John, verse 4. He says, the shepherd goes before the sheep and they follow him for they know his voice. One of the functions of a shepherd is not to lead from behind. He doesn't follow the sheep, but he takes the initiative. The shepherd leads the flock. In that shepherd psalm, the 23rd psalm, on two occasions, verse 2 and verse 4, we read that he leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He leadeth me beside the still waters. And a shepherd going out before or in front of the sheep to guide them in the path that he has determined they need to travel is a very familiar image to each of us today. There's an example of this principle in Numbers chapter 27, a verse that we've also considered, which is Moses' prayer to God, verse 16 He prayed to God, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them. Notice he's leading them, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. And notice God's answer in verse 18, and the Lord said unto Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand upon him and give him charge in the sight of the congregation. So the shepherd is a leader of the sheep. Let's explain the principle, this principle that a shepherd 
leads the flock. And I think we can say that pastoral ministry is intended to be leadership by example. Not leadership by personal charisma. It's not just a man's gifts that qualify him as a leader. Or leadership by a dominant personality. Sometimes people say, well, you're going to be the leader because you're a type A kind of person. But a pastor leads the church. He takes the initiative. He steps up to the plate and makes the first move. You see, pastoral ministry is intended to be leadership, not by a dominant personality or by a personal kind of charisma, but by example. And that's what we've heard in our text. Paul says to Timothy, be an example of the believers. I want you to set the pace for the church in word, the way you talk, in conversation, that is, in your conduct, your lifestyle, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity, you're to be an example. That's what the word in Titus said to us as well. Be a pattern of believers. Be a pattern for godliness in your doctrine. Show uncorruptness. And notice the word example in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and the word pattern in Titus chapter 2 are very similar terms. Now, interestingly, both are picture words. The word example in 1 Timothy has to do with typesetting. It means to make an impression by striking with a mallet. Perhaps you've seen the old methods of setting type or graving into a rock. You know, they would take a chisel and they would strike with the mallet. And like the old-fashioned typewriter takes the hammer and it makes an impression in the paper. It sets the type. It makes an impression by striking with some force. That's the word example. Be an example. You're to make an impression like the old-fashioned typewriter. The word pattern in Titus means to draw a sketch or to write a first draft. Most good artists will make a first draft or a sketch, a rough draft, before they begin to add the details. And so the pastor is encouraged to be the first draft for Christian living. He's to be an example, like a sketch before the actual painting is made. Paul's point is that a pastor is intended to model the message that he communicates from the pulpit and so win the right to lead the church with authority. Now, this principle is taught elsewhere in the New Testament. Let me give you a sampling of verses. Philippians 3.17, Brethren, be followers together of me, says the Apostle Paul, and mark them which walk, so as you have us for an ensample. There's the idea. The word ensample, of course, means example. He says, Brethren, be followers of me. Followers is imitators. I want you to imitate me. Now, perhaps you've are familiar with the principle of little children living what they learn. And the idea is that they duplicate or copy what they see in their parents. If they have good role models, they take their cue from their role models and they duplicate that in their lifestyle. That's why when parents are ungodly, it has a generational impact on the children. You know, in the Old Testament, God said, I will visit the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations, what he's saying is there tends to be generational dysfunction. When the parents have been ungodly, their children, because they live what they've learned, they continue the pattern. So the point that I make is that 
children imitate their parents or their role models. Well, the same is true for a shepherd and a sheep. The sheep look to the shepherd to guide them. And where the shepherd goes, the sheep follow. The shepherd leads by example. So Paul says, be followers, imitators. That's what the word means, mimics. The Greek word actually gives us the English word mimic. Be imitators, followers of me, and walk so as you have us for an example. Now I want you to understand this morning, my beloved, that God has blessed the church not merely to tell us what he expects of us, but to give us pastors according to his heart who will show us as well as tell us. Back when I was a boy, we would have every Friday at school show and tell in which you could bring in something that was precious to you and you could explain why it was so important to you to the class. And some kids would bring in a baseball card, you know, of, you know, Hank Aaron or Roberto Clemente or Roger Maris. And some girls would bring in a little Barbie doll or whatever. This is important to me. And they would show and tell. Isn't it a mercy from God that he not only tells us what he expects of us? I can listen and learn, but I learn best when I not only hear through my ears, but I can see an example with my eyes. And here's the thought. God has given the ministry and pastors to the church not only to preach his word to us, but to live the gospel and to lead by example. Show yourself a pattern of godliness. Show yourself an example in word, in faith, in purity, in doctrine. You see, my friends, that's the principle that's under consideration here. You see this thought in several other verses. Let's hit them quickly so I don't spend too much time. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, be followers of me as I also follow Christ. Now, I've heard people say before, I don't follow any man. And I understand what they mean when they say that, but it is appropriate to follow a man if he's following the Lord. So be imitators, that's the thought again. Obviously, the Lord is our leader. We sing a hymn sometimes entitled, Children of the Heavenly King, as you journey sweetly sing. The last verse says, Only thou our leader be, and we still will follow thee. I love the words of Moses to God when God called him to lead the children of Israel. Moses said, Lord, if thou go not with us, send us not forth. In other words, Lord, the only way that I can lead the people and that we can be successful is if you go before us. You be the ultimate leader. And I'm glad to tell you that the Lord, and this is the point we've stressed for the last couple of weeks, is the perfect leader, the perfect shepherd of his flock. But he has given them pastors according to his heart, and he's to function in it by an exemplary kind of ministry. Leadership is by example. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, listen to this. You became followers of us and of the Lord. Now, the church at Thessalonica were originally idolaters. These were pagans who were worshiping in darkness and ignorance. But Paul came into that city preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the result. Our gospel came not unto you, verse 5, in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And you became followers of us. What does that mean? That means they were converted. He preached and people believed. Converts were made, and they became followers of Paul and of the Lord. 
having received the word in much affliction, that is when they first believed they were persecuted for it, but yet with joy of the Holy Ghost. Notice the paradox of true Christian experience in that verse. You receive the word in much affliction, but also with joy in the Holy Ghost. And my friends, it's not easy to be a Christian, but I'll tell you there is true joy to be had in the way. And Paul says, you became followers of us and you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. They made a radical transformation or change in their lives and they did so by following Paul. They said, we're going to live like Paul lives because Paul is following the Lord. Notice that thought of followers or imitators, mimics again in that verse. Now look at 1 Peter 5 verse 2. Peter says to the elders, I'm also an elder. I like how he doesn't pull rank, but he identifies himself and treats them as colleagues and peers. He says, feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. That is, you take the leadership. There's no reason once you've been ordained, Peter says to these elders, and you've been publicly recognized to have a call from God and to be qualified to be a minister and a pastor. There's no reason to wait for somebody then to give you further permission. He said, you've been given the charge by the Lord. Now get busy doing what you've been called to do. Take the oversight. Take the lead of the church. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but as a ready mind, neither being lords over God's heritage, watch this, but being in samples to the flock. Now, how does he define God's people in this verse? The flock. That's the shepherd metaphor. And he says, I want you to be an example to the flock. And one more verse then, 2 Thessalonians 3.9. Paul says, brethren, when I came to preach in Thessalonica, I didn't eat any man's bread. I didn't take from others. I didn't expect you to serve me, but I wrought with labor and travail night and day. And by the way, Paul was an evangelist, and he knew that if he came across as being a charlatan, who was trying to use the people for his own personal gain, you know, send in your money and I'll send you a prayer cloth. He, he, he knew that that would undermine the effectiveness of getting a church started. So he said, when I came into the city, I didn't take any man's bread for naught, but I wrought with labor and travail night and day. I worked hard with my own hands that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we don't have the power or the authority to be supported, but to make ourselves an ensample. I did it so that you would have an example to follow us, to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Uh, evidently, there were people in Thessalonica who were slothful. They didn't have a high work ethic, and Paul said, I came preaching, but I worked with my own hands to teach you by my example what it means to maintain a Christian ethic so far as work and labor is concerned. So here's the thought. Pastoral ministry is leadership by example. That's the principle. Now let's further develop the picture. The Lord Jesus Christ gives pastors to the church as living examples of what it means to be a Christian. Pastoral ministry is an object lesson in discipleship. The pastorate is Christianity in miniature, if you please. It's supposed to be a microcosm of the Christian life. And there's an illustration of this in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, 
This chapter is devoted to the requirements for Nazarites among the Jews. You can read Numbers chapter 6 sometime on your own. I won't go into the details of it except to say this. The Hebrew word for Nazarite means to be separate. And you see, the Nazarites were a special class of people among the Jews. And probably one that you're familiar with is the man Samson. You know, Samson was a Nazarite. There were three requirements or three basic requirements for a man or a woman to be a Nazarite. Number one, you couldn't taste the fruit of the vine. So you couldn't drink wine. And by the way, that was the main beverage that people drank in that day because water was not pure. Water was easily contaminated. They didn't have filtration systems and chemical treatments and the kinds of things we have today. So they drank something that had gone through the process of fermentation so that they would know that it was healthy. But a Nazarite couldn't drink any fruit of the vine like average people, so he was different in that respect. The second requirement is no razor could come on his head. He wasn't ever to have a haircut, or she wasn't ever to have her hair done. Now, imagine going for a period of years, maybe even your lifetime, without ever having your hair cut. You would look pretty strange, wouldn't you? So he couldn't drink the fruit of the vine, he couldn't have his hair cut, and he couldn't ever go to a funeral, even of his family. He could not come into contact with the deceased, lest he be ceremonially unclean. So even his parents, his siblings, his family, he was not to even fraternize or observe their passing. And Samson was a popular figure that we know of who was a Nazarite. Remember his long hair? Now, by the way, Samson violated every one of the vows, the Nazarite vows. He violated every part of this vow of separation. But Samuel is another example of Nazarites in the Old Testament. You remember from a child, he was devoted to the Lord. And he lived in the temple. And Samuel was separate from the community at large. John the Baptist was another example of a man who'd taken a Nazarite vow. The Bible describes John the Baptist coming from the wilderness to preach. And he wore not the cleric's robes, but he wore a leathern girdle, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And I'll tell you, he was a strange-looking character. Now, the purpose of Nazarites in the Old Testament, it was that they were to live in radical terms a life of separation. They were to live as a kind of object lesson to the nation as a whole of what it meant to be totally consecrated to God. They were radically devoted to serving God. These eccentric Nazarites stood out from the crowd as a whole like an oddity and a curiosity. I've often thought that little children who saw a Nazarite would say, look, Daddy, at that strange man over there with his long hair and his rough-looking clothing, and, and he's different from the rest of us. Why did God set up this particular class of individuals called Nazarites under the old economy who lived separate from the community at large? In fact, the level of their separation was so complete that they even had a separate chamber in the temple called the Chamber of the Nazarites that allowed them to worship publicly while maintaining their life of separation from others and total consecration to God. 
Well, you see, the Nazarite was intended again to be an example of what the call to holiness upon the people in general meant in real life terms. And likewise, a pastor is to lead the church by an exemplary life of total dedication to God. We want pastors that will be at the house of God when the doors are open. You know, when I was a boy growing up, one of the scandals that I remember was a preacher downstate that the report went out that he missed church several Sunday mornings because he was on the golf course. And that was just mind-blowing to the adults. And I remember even as a little child thinking, that's not right. A preacher's supposed to be at church on Sunday. But you see, dear friends, the preacher's not the only one who's supposed to be at church on Sunday. God's people are called to worship him publicly. But he's to set the example. He's to be the one who is totally devoted to God. He's to live his Christian life, not just on Sunday. We expect the preacher to be a Christian on Tuesday afternoon, Thursday morning, Saturday night, right? And the same is true for God's people. You see, the point is, the pastor is intended to model the message that he preaches by living the gospel. Not only by verbally communicating God's word but he's called to show others what it looks like to be a Christian by his daily life. Now, I want to say that no man can do that perfectly. I've already hinted at this. Paul said, be followers of me as I also follow Christ. No man is a perfect example of Christianity. And the reason that's true is because even preachers have a sin nature. I'm just like you. Sometimes people think the pastor wouldn't understand that I struggle with this particular, in this particular area of my life. I'm telling you, he does understand because preachers are people too. Shepherds are first sheep. They are recipients of the grace of God just like the Lord's people are. What I'm trying to avoid here is this idea of a clergy-laity distinction that is so popular in Roman Catholic circles. You know, the idea is that the clergy, the cardinals or the priests, are a separate class over here that are really, they don't mix and mingle with the regular folks. We want to avoid that. Now, I also want to avoid the Quaker mindset that says that there is no official role of gospel ministry, that everybody can speak and teach and preach. And because women are stereotypically more spiritually minded than men folk are, you know, that's why the female leadership in Quaker circles became so popular. You know, they didn't have a pastor. Quakers didn't have a preacher who'd come in and conduct service, deliver a sermon, but they would just sit there until the Holy Spirit came on somebody and usually it was the ladies that would stand up and start teaching. So you've got two extremes. You've got the professional cleric idea that we see in Catholicism and you've got the no cleric idea that you see in Quakerism. You know, no clergy, no pastor, that the, everybody is on equal terms. And I'm telling you, the truth lies in the middle of those two extremes. There is such a thing as an official role of gospel ministry. But at the same time, he's not more important than the church. He's just to set the pace. He's to take the initiative. He's to blaze the trail. He's to be the pioneer in that sense to show God's people what it means not only to love the Lord, but to trust in Him and to live a Christian life. So God has given His church pastors for the purpose of leading them, but it's not leadership in an authoritarian way. 
He's not a ruler, in other words. It's not his church. He doesn't get to tell people what to do. Thumb his lapels and say, I want you to serve me and to do what I tell you or you're going to pay the price. No, it's to be servant leadership. It's to be exemplary leadership. It's to be a microcosm of the Christian life. I hope that makes sense this morning. Pastoral ministry is given like the Nazarites of the Old Testament to show people he's a holy man. He should be, you see. That's what holiness looks like. He doesn't fraternize with the world. He's totally committed to the Lord. Now, perhaps you say, preacher, I I don't need to be totally committed to the Lord. That's why we have a pastor. No, again, he's to be an example of what you're supposed to follow. Follow us as we also follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's explore the implications of this before the clock beats us too far. The pastor's called to model this message And of course, only the Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect example. But again, the church is urged to follow us as we follow the Lord Jesus. Now, the implication of this is, I think, is apparent. The minister's life is going to directly influence the effectiveness of his ministry. When I was a boy growing up, our first pastor at Muleshoe Primitive Baptist Church on the plains of West Texas was Elder Afton Richards. And Elder Richard said one time, God's people love good food, but they like it on a clean plate. And I've always thought that was a good example. They like preachers that can preach, but they want the preacher to live a life that is worthy. You know, they want to be served on a clean platter. How would you like to go to a restaurant and get a good gourmet meal and find out that the fork had dried egg on it and the plate had food that had not been washed off properly, you'd say, oh, that just ruins my appetite. I've lost my appetite, even though the food's delicious, the platter's dirty. My friends, may I say, we want good food to come from the pulpit, but we want a minister who delivers it, even though he's not perfect. He's a sinner too, but we want him to be sincere. We want his heart to be right. Isn't that true? The pastor then is called to live a life that is godly because that's going to directly impact the effectiveness of his ministry. Listen to this verse in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Paul said, our gospel came unto you not in word only. Now, you know, the gospel can come in just word. It can just be word. So it goes in one ear, out the other, and you say, that doesn't mean anything to me. Paul said, our gospel came to you not in word only, but in power. It meant something. It touched your heart. And in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, watch this next phrase. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes, and you became followers of us. That last expression is very important. Paul said our gospel was effective. But it was effective in large part because you knew the kind of people we were that preached it to you as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. What this passage is teaching is that Paul's preaching assumed greater relevance and credibility in the lives of his hearers by virtue of his godly lifestyle. In other words, what I'm saying is pastoral ministry is a character profession. Now there are some jobs you can do that don't really depend on the kind of person you are on the inside. You could be a good dentist without necessarily being a morally upright person. You could probably be a good pilot of an aircraft without being godly in your heart. But you know, you can't be a good preacher unless you're for real 
a true Christian who loves the Lord and is walking closely with him, Jesus teaches the principle in the Sermon on the Mount that external usefulness is directly tied to the person's internal walk with God in his own heart. He said, if you pray in secret, the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The idea is that you will never be of any greater usefulness on the outside in ministry than you are in your private devotional walk with God in your heart and in your closet, the secret parts of your life. This is why the qualifications for the ministry in the chapter right before the chapter in 1 Timothy where we took our text this morning, 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for the ministry are primarily not academic, they're primarily moral because the ministry is a character profession. You know there's only one academic criteria, a preacher is to be apt to teach. He's to be able to teach. But other than that, everything else that it says there about an elder, somebody that's to be ordained as a minister, has to do with his moral character, his qualifications in a character kind of setting. I love a statement by the old Scottish Presbyterian Robert Murray McShane. He said, my people's greatest need Now, how would you fill in the blank? My people's greatest need is for me to deliver powerful sermons. That's not what he said. My people's greatest need, the pastor said, is my personal holiness. That's surprising. But I agree with it. He said, it's not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. Indeed, my friends... Spiritual gifts without personal godliness will not result in a fruitful ministry over the long term. Gifts will not be of much use where godliness is absent. There's no credibility in a bald man trying to sell hair restore. (laughs) And there's no credibility in an ungodly minister trying to tell others about the transforming power of God's grace. The ministry is a character profession. This is the reason a pastor's personal life is so basic and vital to an effective ministry. You know, we've mentioned a couple of verses in the course of this study, 1 Timothy 4.16, where Paul says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, and Acts 20.28, where he says, take heed to yourself and to the flock. Did you notice what those two verses have in common? Take heed to the flock, take heed to the doctrine, but both of them have this in common. They begin with this exhortation, take heed to yourself, take heed to yourself. The preacher, before he's to take heed to the doctrine, before he's to take heed to the flock, he's to take heed to himself. The preacher's self-watch is basic and fundamental. The late John R.W. Stott, who was a popular minister on the international stage who passed away just a couple of years ago, said only if pastors first take heed to themselves or guard themselves will they be able then to guard the sheep. Only if pastors first tend their own spiritual life will they be able then to tend the flock of God. This is why it's so important for God's people to pray for their ministers. If you look at the New Testament over and over again, these Bible writers say, brethren, pray for us. And I think that's very humble of Paul. Here's the great apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul, but he says to the church at Thessalonica, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. He says to the church at Rome, brethren, pray for us. My friends, I would say to you today, pray for your preachers, pray for your pastors. 
You know, there's a word in the pastoral epistles that doesn't appear in the introduction to the other epistles in your New Testament. Most of the other epistles start like this, grace and peace be unto you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the pastoral epistles include this word mercy, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. You know why he includes that word mercy in the letters he writes to the pastors? It's because preachers need a lot of mercy. Because preachers struggle with their old nature. Preachers are responsible to guard a sacred trust. Preachers are called to do an impossible task. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. I like the way a modern writer interpreted that verse. They said, we have this treasure in cracked pots. Do you know what happens to a pot once it's cracked? Maybe a vessel that has cracks in it or holes in it. It doesn't hold water, does it? You put a liquid in it and it runs out the cracks. And I'm telling you, we have this treasure of the gospel in cracked pots. In these clay vessels. And, and I have to tell you, my body's weak. My mind wanders. My voice cracks. The Lord deserves better than what he gets from me. That's true. Sometimes I say, Lord, I'm not sufficient for the ministry. You know, Paul said that. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiencies of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. I want to tell you today, dear friends, I can't live the Christian life in and of myself. I can't be a good minister in and of myself. I need the strength of the Holy Spirit. I need the prayers of God's people. Therefore, my beloved, pray for your pastors because they are weak men that have a responsible position and the Lord calls upon them to live the gospel that they preach to others because how much benefit would it have in your life if you knew that the things I was preaching that I really didn't try to practice in my life? Now, Again, I'm not perfect at it, but at least I'm trying. I hope that that's evident. And my beloved, if it wasn't evident, I dare say it would have zero benefit whatsoever. For God has given pastors to lead the church by taking the initiative to be Christians themselves. And Satan knows if he can cripple and make a caricature out of the minister, then the church cannot be what she's supposed to be. Because preachers are the pace setters for the church. They are the special targets, I believe, of the adversary. If the wicked one can tempt a pastor to compromise theologically or morally, then he has delivered a strategic blow to the progress of Christ's kingdom in the earth. Indeed, my friends, God's ministers need mercy and they need the prayers of God's people. Those are the implications. I've got just a few minutes left. I want to look at the particulars. Let's explore the particulars of this idea that the shepherd leads the church by example. We've explained the principle. We've developed the picture by looking at the Nazarites in the Old Testament who were role models, who were microcosms of what God's called to holiness upon the nation as a whole. We've explored the implications that this means that the pastor his life is going to directly affect the gospel that he preaches. Now I want you to look at the particulars in our text. Paul says to Timothy, be an example of the believers in seven areas. In your words, your speech, in your conversation. That word conversation means your conduct, your lifestyle, your behavior. In your charity, your attitude, a loving attitude, 
A preacher needs to be an example. He needs to take the lead for what it means to be loving and kind. He needs to take the lead. Now, you see, this is where this kind of preaching affects each one of us. Because the idea is that we need role models. Now, where are you going to look for your role models? Somebody says, I look to Hollywood for my role models. I'll tell you, my friends, they'll lead you astray. You say, I look to Capitol Hill for my role models. And know, my friends, if you want any semblance of honesty in your life, I wouldn't look there for people to imitate. You say, well, I look to the Lord. But you see, that's good. The Lord is the ultimate example. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. But he's also given us real life examples that should be role models and god's people should look to their pastors and say brother mike reads the bible i want to read my bible more brother goins is a man of prayer i should be praying more he's trusting god even though he's having some problems in his life he's going through a difficult patch but look how his faith is strong i want to be more like that you see what a blessing it is that god gives us role models the pastor is supposed to be that that's my point a shepherd leads by example now in these areas here are seven particular areas in which a pastor's life should be exemplary first his speech be an example in word now, interestingly when god called isaiah to preach in Isaiah chapter 6, the first complaint Isaiah registers is, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isn't it interesting that the one part of his anatomy that he highlights is his words, his speech, his tongue? And by the way, we sin more with our mouths than we do with any other part of our anatomy. Words that are boastful, gossip, slander, lying, all of these are sins of the tongue. Uh, what about blasphemy? What about criticism of others? Paul tells the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. James gives us detailed instruction on guarding the tongue, bridling the tongue. He said no man can tame the tongue. He said they've tamed the wildest of animals, but nobody's ever tamed the tongue. The best you can do is bridle it. Harness it. And by the way, God's given you two white fences to keep that slippery serpent in. And the less we speak, the less we sin. The book of Proverbs talks about how the tongue is a world of iniquity. It talks about the problems that people have with their words. And you know, when a man talks as much as a preacher does, he's liable to make some errors. James says this in James 3.1, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that in many ways we offend all. If a man offends not in word, the same as a mature or perfect man able to bridle the whole body. If he can bridle his tongue, he can bridle his whole body. In other words, you can learn a lot by a person's self-discipline by how they use their words. And he said the preacher is to be exemplary in his speech, the way he talks in his words. You've probably heard this before, the pew will seldom rise higher than the pulpit. And that's why when a preacher uses critical and abrasive and unkind words as a rule, he sets a precedent for the same in the congregation. When he engages in gossip and slander, when he belittles or throws shade on other preachers or the Lord's people that he serves, he opens the floodgates for the compounding of tongue sins within the body of Christ. In this age of mass communication where people are talking incessantly on social media, 
in text messaging and through blogs and podcasts, it is vitally important that a preacher set the example for what it means to be a Christian in the way he uses his words. Sanctified speech. That's one area, my friends, where we need holiness is in our speech. Then he says, be an example of the believers in conduct. And that means that others will form their opinions of our Lord based on what they see in us. And because pastors set the pace for godliness among the Lord's people, they must model excellent behavior in their conduct. And then he says, be an example of the believers in charity. That means in your attitude. And I want to say a few things about that and these other things here. And since the time has run out on us this morning and I knew there was no way I could get to all that I had on my heart to deal with today, yet I want to come back to this, the Lord willing, on a future occasion. But I hope this point has been clear that pastoral ministry is intended to be a microcosm, a small-scale example of the Christian life so that we not only hear what the Bible says a Christian ought to be, but we're able to look to the pastor as one who's an example of that. He's trying. He's sincere. He's genuine. He's leading us as the under-shepherd of the flock. The gospel shepherd leads the sheep by an exemplary life. That is the goal. May God help me to be more consistent at it. Would you pray for me to that end? And may he help you to outdistance me, to outgrow me, to be more committed to the Lord than I ever have been. You know, that's what I want as a parent. Somebody says, don't you feel bad if your kids do better than you in life? Absolutely not. I want them to do better than me. I want them to be more successful than I've been. I want them to be more consistent. I want them to have a better home life than I've had, to be better husbands better wives, better mothers, better fathers. I want them to, to go beyond me. And the same is true as a pastor. This isn't about me. I would be happy if all the Lord's people were prophets. If you become more knowledgeable of the Word of God than I am, my friends, more power to you. May God help me to set a good example. That's what ministry is. Pastors are leaders. Shepherds lead the flock by example. Jesus, our Lord, grant us this hour our holy presence and His power, that we may feel Thy sovereign hand. Jeez.